Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But it's mostly about Star Wars. All right, Kevin. We are in week a zillion of staying at home, and we've managed to rewatch The Mandalorian pretty much in an entire weekend. Uh, last weekend, about? Yeah, I think that, yep. I don't know. Every day's Wednesday at this point. Every so. day is Wednesday. I think today's, what, a Sunday Wednesday? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I think tomorrow is actually Monday. We'll, we'll see. Um, but no, it, just rewatching it, it, it held up. Um, just to give you guys an overview of, of what The Mandalorian is, it's an eight episode or chapter, as they like to call it, series so far. And it takes place, uh, what, Kevin, five years after the Battle of Endor? Yes. All so, right. So, so it brings by, us into it. Yeah, by our timeline, this is uh, somewhere between 10 and 11 after the Battle of Yavin. Um, we are in a time between the Empire as the government running the galaxy and the New Republic not quite established as the government running the galaxy. And so there's a lot of kind of ambiguity around who's running things. There's a lot of lawlessness. There's a lot of sort of local rule. And as a result, uh, bounty hunting is a, a pretty lucrative profession. Right. And we're about 20 years before Episode 7, so the First Order hasn't taken hold yet either. That's right. And so just to give a little bit more context around, you know, some of the other, where is everybody in, in you know, in, the, in their personal journeys at this time? Han and Leia are presumably married at this point. Um, their child, Ben Solo, may have been born, but may have not. Probably has been born as toddler would be my guess. Yeah, he's if he's born, he's pretty young. Um, Ray, uh, she has not been born yet because she's, I think, only 18 in those. So this would be after this. Um, Luke Skywalker is presumably just sort of flitting around um, researching Jedi stuff. Um, R2-D2 and C-3PO are doing whatever droids do in their downtime. So there's a, there's like a lot of kind of downtime for our heroes during this time. Um, we had a, we actually had a pretty long debate and pulled up some, some footage to try to figure out where Ahsoka and Sabine are. I know we haven't talked about Rebels very much in uh, this podcast yet, but Ahsoka Tano, who we did talk about in Clone Wars and is one of our favorite characters, really. Um, at the end of Rebels, she and Sabine go off looking for Ezra, who are all people that you'll meet when we talk about Rebels. And we're not 100% sure what they're up to right now, but they're kicking around somewhere. Yeah, we think that might be concurrent to what's going on in The Mandalorian, but we're not 100% sure. Um, I, I think that for the math to check out, Ben Solo is probably four or five at this point because he's got to have, you know, a few years to be kind of growing up with his mom and dad and then a few more years to be under Luke's training and then a few more years to not be under Luke's training. So I, I think he's probably no more than five, but probably two, three or four. Probably. Something yeah. like that. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I think you're right. Ray is probably not born yet. And it's we got to imagine Leia is somewhat involved in the New Republic. Yeah, it would probably be assumed at this point that she's helping to establish the new government along with Mon Mothma. Um, Bail Antilles of Alderaan died on Alderaan, so he's not around anymore. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. You know, there are really no other Jedi Admiral left. Admiral Akbar, maybe? Admiral Akbar would still be alive, so presumably he's kind of running. Um, he's probably running the New Republic military. Uh, which would be consistent with his position in canon. In uh, I mean, in Legends. In Legends, he ended up being kind of the uh, the commander-in-chief of the New Republic military. 
Um, I'm trying to think if, you know, most, you know, mostly the heroes, Lando Calrissian's off doing whatever Lando does in his downtime. He's scheming and, and probably playing I'm cards. Sure, I'm totally sure that he is gambling and chasing ladies around the galaxy. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, really, it's just kind of what what's happened with our, our friends that we know from other series like Rebels. We don't really know. Um, what's really great, though, is that the Mandalorian basically takes our knowledge of Star Wars and, and our galaxy far, far away and brings in a bunch of new characters. And it makes it so that anyone who likes Star Wars can be engaged and people who haven't previously really been into the entire series can come in and still know what's happening. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's, I mean, it's it's awesome. It's a really great show. It's very good Star Wars. Like, I mean, it's it just it has a lot of the elements that you know we know and love. But at the same time, you're you're exactly right. It's it's not all that dependent on any of the existing storylines. If you know other you know storylines, they enrich the experience. But it's really a a, a very good standalone show. Um, but it is produced to be in line with the rest of the content. And I have a feeling, so they've ordered two more seasons already. So season one is out. Season two is in, has been fully shot and is in editing right now. And season three is in production. Um, John Favreau, the, um, from Iron Man, the Iron Man, John Favreau, not the, uh, politics podcaster, John Favreau is the, uh, the writer for the whole series. Um, and he's working with Dave Filoni, who was the showrunner for all the animated series. So. Right. Good team. Yeah, so we can definitely expect some good teamwork. Um, if your Facebook feed is anything like mine, you get a lot of sponsored and suggested content, uh, most of which for me has been Star Wars related and uh, tons of quote unquote Easter eggs to be found within The Mandalorian. We, we'll touch on a little bit today, but probably talk more about those at a later time. But really, uh, let's get into it with who the new folks are. Who, who do we meet? Yeah, so, I mean, the main character in this whole thing is um, the Mandalorian. He's a Mandalorian. And, and they all call him Mando, basically. Yeah, they all call him Mando. Um, he doesn't reveal his name to too many people. So he, so we do, we do learn his name uh, in the series. His name is Din Djarin. Yeah, we learned that in, like, the last episode, too. That's right. Yeah, and, and so he grew up on some random unnamed planet. doesn't really matter. Um, when he was a child, his planet came under attack by uh, separatist uh, droid fighters, and he was about to be killed, and he was rescued by Mandalorians who were members of Death Watch. Right, and he watches his mom and dad get killed, too. So there's a little bit of a similarity to um, in Rogue One, you know, kind of just like you see the scared child, and then all of a sudden they're rescued. Yeah, so yeah, I exactly. That, was interesting. that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, and so he grows up with um, uh, a cult of what I would call um, sort of extreme Orthodox Mandalorians. And a, a large part of their, their religion and their practice, they call it the way. Um, they say this is the way a lot. Um, and the way seems to be like a very, very hardcore version of Mandalorian warrior ethos, including once you come of age and you put on your helmet, you are not allowed to be seen by another living person without your helmet or you are expelled from the way. Right. And they're really strict about a lot of things. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because all of the introductions that we've had to Mandalorians before, all of the storylines that we've seen in the Clone Wars thus far, um, and even in Rebels, which again, we haven't gotten to, but we one day will, um, they just 
don't show this type of Mandalorian culture. So it's very confusing to figure out where this extremist group has been hiding all along, except maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe they've just been hiding. Yeah, that's right. And and it it's it's sort of implied that because he's rescued by Death Watch and raised by Mandalorians that this is some sort of offshoot of Death Watch. We know we've met Death Watch before. They were um prominent in one of the subplots in Clone Wars uh where um uh Obi-Wan Kenobi goes to Mandalore and he, you know, he has a relationship with the then prime uh leader, I guess the Duchess of Mandalore. Um, and Death Watch is sort of a, opposing her government. And so he fights the leader of Death Watch, but that leader of Death Watch is not wearing his helmet at the time. So this whole this is the way thing is, is a new concept. But anyway, Din Djarin, um, he's a bounty hunter. Um, he, he lives with uh, what they call a covert of Mandalorians um, that are named the tribe that live on the planet Navarro. And part of their rules is only one member of the tribe is allowed to be visible in public at any time. And so um, this Mandalorian happens to be chosen most of the time to sort of represent them. He does bounty hunting work and then he turns over parts of his proceeds to the tribe um, to sort of, uh, you know, pay for their lives. Right. They're very communal, very, very organized together. There's a sense of, you know brotherhood, sisterhood, uh, just, you know, very strong family ties. And I think that's an important thing. Um, you know, we, we don't see a lot of like love relationship type relationships, but we see, you know, family relationships in this quite a bit. Um, and, and just kind of the dynamic that here's this boy that was an orphan that now has probably the strongest slash most intense family relationship ever is, you know, just to the extremes here. And while he's on Navarro, we, we meet another character named Grief Karga. Yeah, so Grief Karga is the local representative of the Bounty Hunters Guild. So his job is to uh, hand out, bounty. they call them pucks. Um, he hands out bounty pucks to bounty hunters and um, sort of gives them their assignments. And he also hands um, gives them the fobs. But his basically his job is to, to hand out bounties and then he obviously gets a cut of the bounties when they're turned in. Right. And one of the things I find really unusual is that they can't quite keep a government in order, yet somehow bounty hunters have unionized and are organized. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it, I think this is actually a holdover from Republic days. Um, there were a lot of guilds in the Republic that continued to exist through the Empire and then continued to exist, presumably post-Empire. And the bounty hunters were one of them. The other guilds, we've run into the Bankers Guild. We've run into you know the Trade Federation. So some of these things are are, are sort of pre-imperial and just continue to exist because they, you know, they have their own sort of rules, their own sort of ethos, their own sort of economics, and they enforce the rules on each other, which doesn't really require a government. So they, they've got kind of got staying power because if you if you break the rules of the guild, you get thrown out of the bounty hunters guild. You don't work anymore. And for what it's worth, at this point, if you're imperial. Uh, you're a criminal, you're wanted. And so there's a lot of work left for bounty hunters, if you think about that. Yeah. Um, one of the other bounty hunters we meet is IG-11. He's a droid. Yes. So he's an IG unit. Um, IG units have been around in Star Wars canon all the way back to Empire Strikes Back. So in the um, in sort of the first time we meet bounty hunters in Empire Strikes Back is during sort of the asteroid chase scene Um Darth Vader has a bunch of bounty hunters on his ship uh, and gives them an assignment to find the Millennium Falcon. One of them is IG-88. 
who's the uh, the first IG unit we've ever met. IG-11 we run into um, when uh, the Mandalorian is tracking down the child, and IG-11 has sort of made it to the bounty first. They team up, uh, and the Mandalorian kills him before he is able to, to claim the child as his bounty. Right. So, and, and what's interesting in this is that you've identified one of the other characters, but really no one knows what this bounty is. It's just basically anyone who's anyone who's a bounty hunter is going after this bounty. And it's so high paying and it, it's so dangerous. And so many other bounty hunters are involved in this hunt for it that there's what dozens, if not hundreds of bounty hunters going after this. That's right. And, you know, um, just since we're since we bring it up, there's it. it well, let me put a pin in it. I've got a question for you later about the nature of the bounty payout when we uh, when we get there. Okay. Um, and so IG-11 is ultimately reborn um, by one of the other characters and becomes uh, an ally of the Mandalorian who, because his family was killed by droids, has a, a serious distrust of droids. Yeah, no, he, he straight up hates droids. He doesn't want them anywhere near him or anything that's important to him. And so that comes into play later. Um, you know, just to kind of come back now, we, we've got who's who's asking for this bounty? We, we've got the client. Yes. So the client is actually never given a name. Um, the only person in the client's orbit that has a name is uh, some sort of doctor who works for him named Dr. Pershing. Um, and they both put out a request for um, this bounty to be collected. And it's it's on what ends up being a, a child. Uh, the client is an ex-imperial. He still has uh, a group of stormtroopers that operate as his sort of bodyguards and enforcers. He has clearly has imperial material. He wears an imperial medallion. Like He doesn't try to hide the fact that he's related to the Empire. Yeah, no. Uh, the Battle of Endor did not happen in this guy's eyes. That's right. And and so what's interesting is that he offers the bounty to the Mandalorian and in exchange for... Um, bringing him the asset, he offers him uh, what's called a Cantu of uh, Beskar steel. And what I find interesting is that Beskar is sort of only relevant to Mandalorians. So it begs the question: What did he offer to everybody else? Did he? Did does he, is he so wealthy that he has specific bounties for everybody, or is everybody playing for the same prize and it just happens to line up well with the Mandalorian? Yeah, I, I mean that could potentially just be a plot device, or it could be that he doesn't really trust any of the other bounty hunters to get it done, and so he he's all in on the Mandalorian here. Um, and so let, let's talk about the bounty, uh, the asset, if you will. It, it's a child, and throughout the entire season one, there's no name for this child. Uh, many of us, myself included, have referred to the child as Baby Yoda because it is the cutest. It could not be cuter. I cannot say enough cute things about Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda's awfully cute. Yeah, and he's, at this point, so we don't know anything about Yoda's species other than there was Yoda and Yaddle, and now there's this child. Uh, we don't know if it's their child. Um, what we do know is that this baby child is what, the equivalent of like a two-year-old? Something like that. So they, they are clear that the, that the child is about 50 years old. And if you look at, you know, Yoda lived to be 900. So if you math that out, like the based on behavior and everything, this 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 child seems, yeah, sort of between two and five, I would say, um, doesn't speak, um, 
doesn't express himself particularly well, but oddly is very, 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 very connected to the force and exhibits a whole bunch of force powers that um, other, you know, other people have had to study for quite a while to learn. Right. And, and this is what brings it all back to Star Wars is here's the force here, because we haven't seen lightsabers. We haven't seen Jedi. We haven't seen, you know, Dark Lords of the Sith. We we only see a couple of space battles for all intents and purposes. Um, and, and this is what brings us back to Star Wars. And, and we've got this tiny creature that's so strong with the Force and uses the Force in a variety of different ways, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so who else do we meet, Kevin? Um, let's see. Who else is important? There's, uh, there's Cara Dune. So Cara Dune um, is a person that Mandalorian encounters in his travels. She is a, an ex-rebellion uh, presumably New Republic as well, um, shock trooper or drop trooper or dropper as she's called. They're basically paratroopers um, and they're special forces that were that went in, you know, during the rebellion in various capacities. And then post-rebellion, they were responsible for, you know, kind of finding these remaining Imperial warlords and rooting them out. She's sort of hiding out on um, some random planet that may have a name it may not there are some pla- there are several planets in the show that he visits and don't really ever get names but he um he runs into her and she seems to be kind of hiding out and she talks about how she she has a price on her head at least in imperial territories it's not really clear if she has a price on her head in new republic territories as well cuz she says something about if someone runs her chain code she's going to go to prison and so there there's some there are a lot of questions about you know what her background is but for the most part she seems like a good a good guy and um and she helps out the mandalorian in a few different uh encounters um and uh, she's played by an actual MMA fighter and so that actress does her own stunts and has some pretty cool fights as a result Right, and I think that's really cool because we've kind of always seen in Star Wars movies that the the female characters tend to not have the coolest athleticism, so to speak, or the best fights, um, with the exception of Ahsoka Tano, but that's also animated. So here we are, we've got like live action, we've got this woman uh, just fighting like nobody's business and clearly stronger than most of the folks around her. Yeah. Ahsoka's not going to be animated for too long. I know, I know. I'm very excited about that. Very excited. What is that, October? Yeah, there are rumors that uh, Ahsoka Tano, well, they're, they're pretty strong rumors. That they're Ahsoka, confirmed. Yeah, they're confirmed rumors. Yeah. Okay, so there is confirmed information that Ahsoka Tano is going to be played in season two by Rosario Dawson, and all of that is awesome. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, uh, other important folks that we need to know, there's this Ugnaught named Quill. And he is voiced by Nick Nolte, of all folks. I didn't know what had happened to him, but it turns out uh, doing voiceover work on The Mandalorian. Um, and this Ugnaught is this little character who we've seen Ugnaughts before in Rebels that kind of hang out with Hondo. That's right. Um, and they're just like worker bees, basically, right? Yeah. Actually, the very first time that we see Ugnaughts are on um, Cloud City and Bespin. Um, there's a scene where uh, C-3PO has been kind of blown apart 
and Chewbacca goes to get him before he's incinerated in a like a garbage conveyor belt. And there are these little dudes who are thrown around parts of C-3PO. Those are also Ugnaughts. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so Ugnaughts are these, yeah, they're, they're short little dudes. Um, they kind of have pig faces. This is, it's interesting, um, this Ugnaught named Quill, uh, he said he's been alive for, what he said, something like three human lifetimes. So, you know, he's probably a couple hundred years old, which is a little bit surprising. Um, he was a sort of indentured servant to Imperial Masters, and then he bought his own freedom, and he works by himself on a ranch. And he is the first Ugnaught in um, in any of the canon that I've ever seen that can speak English or basic, as they call it in, in Star Wars. Uh, most of them speak this kind of squeaky pig language of, of the Ugnaughts. He's the only one who speaks basic, um, but he's very smart. He's very um, mechanically inclined. You know, he's spent hundreds of years working on machines, and he's very good at that. And he's got a very strong sense of right and wrong. He he knows that he's done some wrong things in the past and he wants to make up for it. And I think that that's really important because most of the main characters we meet are either clearly on the wrong side of things or have been morally ambiguous for a good part of their lives. Like I think Cara Dune, she probably feels that maybe she was on the right side of things being a drop trooper, but also like, you know, knows that she's done some stuff. Uh, Mandalorian definitely we, we learned that he's had a very shady background as well so this is someone that we meet that feels that he's got sins to atone for and his whole point is to make sure that those around him are also doing the right thing and so he I think just kind of brings that you know important ethical guidance that we need yeah he's definitely the moral compass of the show for sure um, and then uh, the, you know, you kind of touched on the covert that the Mandalorian hangs out with. Uh, there's the armorer who's this female in charge of them. And then there's just some other Mandalorians as well. Yeah. And just to be clear, the armorer is not Bo-Katan. So anybody who sees internet rumors who thinks that she might be Bo-Katan, she's not Bo-Katan. Are you sure about this? I'm 100% sure. And here's why. Okay. Because in one of the scenes um, after... They come, they, they leave Navarro and they come back to Navarro and they bring uh, Baby Yoda with them. And this is after they've seen Baby Yoda, the Mandalorian and his posse have seen the Mandal- have seen Baby Yoda manifest the force a few times. And he describes his behavior um, to the armor as, you know, his species can apparently move things with his mind. And she said, she starts talking about how she's heard of this before in some sort of race of enemy sorcerers and just the ambiguous terms in which she describes a Jedi. She never uses the word Jedi. She never, you know, she talks about it as if it's something she's heard of, but never actually personally witnessed. And Bo-Katan fought side by side with Obi-Wan Kenobi, with Ahsoka Tano. She's met Anakin Skywalker. She was around for the Clone War. She was in the middle of all of it. She was the leader of Mandalore for a period. Um, she has she has wielded a form of a lightsaber, and so she would Bo-Katan would have a much more complete knowledge of both the force. She would know to call it the Force, which the armorer did not know that it was called the Force. She did not know to call them the Jedi. She knew about as much about the Jedi and the Force as you would expect someone who had never been involved with them to know, and therefore is not Bo-Katan. All right. Point well made. Thank you. Okay. I have spoken. <laughs> this is the way. Um, <laughs> so these are all kind of the main characters. And through eight chapters, we learn about, 
you know, basically the Mandalorian starts as this, you know, space western. It's a shoot 'em out kind of situation where he's got his fob, he's going after the asset, and he's going to make his money and move on to whatever the next job is. And when he finally realizes that this job is a little baby, he becomes conflicted. Yeah. And he starts out sort of conflicted in, in this particular job because he doesn't like working for Imperials. But the uh, the client offers him a lot of Beskar. Beskar steel is this special steel that was made on Mandalore. Um, it was used to make armor and other things. It's virtually impervious to blaster bolts as well as lightsabers and various other um, attacks. So it's very valuable armor. And when Mandalore fell, the Imperials kind of took all the Beskar and, and, you know, hoarded it. And so he decides to do this job in order to kind of get that Beskar back from the Imperials. And once he finds out that he has, you know, brought a child back to the empire that and and in doing so the child saves his life right so that happens in the second chapter and you know we we kind of see uh the mandalorian look at baby yoda going "Eh, i'm gonna turn you over and i'm gonna get paid i'm not gonna feel great about it but i'm still gonna do it and then when there's a situation with um a mudhorn a mudhorn so it's kind of like a giant rhinoceros type situation and this rhinoceros mudhorn is gonna take down the mandalorian because he doesn't have beskar the armor he wears is highly uh, pervious and, and you know all of a sudden there's this force that stops this mudhorn from taking the mandalorian's life and it's the child wielding the force yes and the child you know kind of freezes and, and holds the the mudhorn up in the air for a minute <clears throat> giving the mandalorian time to, to kill it and then, you know, collapses and is like unconscious for two days or something, right? But it's sort of at that point that the Mandalorian starts thinking there's something special about this this child, turns it over to the Imperials, breaks the guild code by asking the client, what are you going to do with it? Um, which he gets a little bit of backtalk for. Um, and then he goes back to the Mandalorian covert and turns, you know, turns this Beskar over to the armorer and says, you know, keep a portion to, to pay for the foundlings and to pay for the covert. And then she uses the rest of it to make him essentially a whole new set of armor. And so he's got this like fancy, you know, it's very flashy, very flashy, a lot of attention. Yes. And then he decides that he can't tolerate the fact that the Imperials are in possession of this child. And so he he goes and he he basically blasts his way through their safe house and rescues the child right. and then goes on the run. So when we see him blast through the safe house, um, they've got little baby Yoda on this medical bed with a bunch of, you know, computer connections to it doing tests. And, um, you know, the doctor, you said his name's Dr. Pershing. Here? Dr. Pershing. So Dr. Pershing's like, whoa, don't kill me. You know, they're. they're they're going to do terrible things to this child here. And, and it makes you wonder what the Imperials want to do because they never really seem that interested in the Force. So that's very interesting um, because when we knew them, only Sidious really cared about the Force and Vader cared about the Force. The other Imperials all mocked Vader about it. So I, I think it, it's very interesting that we're seeing someone who doesn't seem very Force savvy um, to be interested in acquiring uh a tiny little baby bundle of force. That's right. And it's entirely possible that they have no interest. Like We don't know. They may have only interest in the fact that his species lives to be 900 years, right? 
It may be a like it may be a life extension thing. We know so little about Yoda species to the point that canonically the only name of the species is Yoda species. Um, and so there's a lot of mystery around what's going on, what the Imperials want with him. But the Mandalorian decides that he does not want the Imperials to have him. So he rescues baby Yoda and then goes on the run. And sort of to get out of town, the rest of the Mandalorians reveal themselves, right? So they come out of the covert. They, um, you know, they sort of... Uh, it's a Western. It's, it's a Western. A it's, it's a straight... Yeah, it really is. It's a straight up like, um, yeah, old Western town, shoot him up. You know, he's pinned down by the, the enemy posse and then his buddies arrive and they all like literally he's running down the street and people are falling off rooftops. And, and yeah, it's a, it's old Western shoot him up and he gets away. Um, and then he goes on the run through, you know, the outer rim for a little while. Right. And, and so in the fourth episode, it's called Sanctuary. And we see what could happen if not for, you know, 50 or 100 more fobs out there for the asset, the child. Um, and, and he winds up on this beautiful planet. And it's uh, not a primitive people, but they're definitely not, you know, computer technology type folks. And they're under attack. And so he meets Cara Dune. And while he's there, they teach this little um, group of people, this village, how to fight for themselves. And he meets this woman who seems pretty into him. And I think he's not opposed to being into her either. And um, Baby Yoda is the cutest in this episode. All those memes you've seen on the Internet where little Baby Yoda is holding a cup of tea come from this episode. Yes. And baby Yoda, you know, not only he, he's got his little cup of tea incident and then he's playing with other children and like he kind of fits in. It's a little fishing village. Um, I think they fish. It sounds like what they do is they fish and then they like poach the fish and make some kind of alcohol out of it, which is pretty cool. Um, great. Good village. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd dig it. I'd be there. I don't know if I drink fish booze. Sounds weird. I don't know. It's blue and glowy and it looks delicious. I don't know. Eh. And they all seem like really nice folks, though. Like, right. It does and seem like a nice place to raise a, a little baby Yoda. That's right. And so, like, by the end of the episode, um, he almost lets uh, the woman whose name I can't remember, um, but he almost lets her take his helmet off. He's really thinking about staying. Um, and then he decides at the last minute that he's going to leave baby Yoda there and then move on and let baby Yoda kind of live a normal life and then try to distract everybody. And a bounty hunter shows up and... Right. And I think that he has a hard time reconciling that he's worthy of love and that he's a worthy and good example of a father. And, and so even though you never see him, his face, you, you never see these facial expression, expressions and this emotional angst that he's going through. Um, I, I think that the way that it's written, the music that goes along with it just really shows the conflict and, and the concern that he has that he's not going to be good enough for this little baby. And it, it turns out that he has no choice because there's a fob. There, there's another bounty hunter. Thank goodness Cara Dune's there um, and she has no moral qualms about shooting another bounty hunter in the back. So yeah, yeah, yeah. sneak it up on somebody and shoot him in the back. You got to be you got to be special to pull that off. But um, but yeah, she does. And then, you know, they talk about it and he decides he has to leave there. So he moves on and he has a little adventure on Tatooine. Yeah, yeah. It, it's called The Gunslinger. And it seems like it's a filler episode in all honesty. But I, I think that it's a setup for many more things to come. And, and we'll find out um, what that is. But there's this other bounty hunter that wants to make a name for himself. And he's just, you know, definitely throat punch worthy. He, he's terrible. 
And the Mandalorian goes on this adventure with him and then, you know, eventually has to escape. And, and nothing really moves the plot forward. We don't learn whose boot it is at the end or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, plenty of speculation. Feel free to Google wildly for, you know, theories about that. But I, I don't really feel like it moved us forward. Not so much. Um, and so he goes from, so he leaves Tatooine with um, really not even any money, but he gets a ship repaired. And then he, what is it after that? He bumps into like some old colleagues and he does a little, he does colleagues a Colleagues is a very loose word here. Uh, it's called it's, the prisoner. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he bumps into a gang he used to run with. He needs some money and he, he needs to, and he's like been kicked out of the guild because he didn't follow the rules. And the only way to get money then is to basically do crime. Yeah. And so he, yeah, he goes back to a gang he used to work with. And they basically, again, this is a, this is a space Western. So they do a train heist. I mean, when it, when it comes down to it, it's a, it's a combination train heist p- prison bust. And again, in this sort of moral evolution of the Mandalorian during this, um, you know, he, once he figures out kind of who he's breaking out, there are two really interesting things that happen in this. One, he agrees to do it because the prison ship that they're on is only manned by droids, and he doesn't want to kill any innocent people. And he has no problem killing droids. He loves killing. In fact, he rather enjoys killing droids and does it in spectacular ways. But as soon as they run into a human person on there, he, he gets into sort of negotiation mode, and some of the other criminals are like, let's just kill this guy. And, and the other criminals are bad. Like, they're not morally ambiguous. They're, like, morally bad. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. I mean, they, they kind of, I mean, they're pushing him around. They were, you know, they threaten Baby Yoda. Like, they do all sorts of things. And they're really mean. They're, like, making fun of the Mandalorian for having what they think is a pet. Luckily, they're all too stupid to realize that this is a tiny little version of Yoda uh, who's strong with the Force. But, yeah, no. And, and there's also a droid, too. Yeah, and he doesn't like that a droid is flying a ship. So he he doesn't like this situation, but they ultimately they kill this New Republic guy. Um and then he decides to sort of take his and then apparently this whole thing is a setup. He he left these guys or abandoned them on a job or something once. And so this was a this was sort of a setup to get him to help them break out one of his former gang members and then they were going to leave him on the prison ship or kill him or something. And um, and he ends up turning it around on them in a in a pretty spectacular way, leaving them all alive in a prison cell. Um, but except a few other guys don't really make it out so well. Which guys? Remember, so he like leaves most of the gang in the in the prison cell, right? And then he goes back to collect his you know oh yeah earnings um, from the guy that hired him, and somehow like those guys all get blown up. I was getting to that part. So the <laughs> yeah 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 I wasn't done yet. Okay. The the New Republic has this weird they have this weird distress distress call thing. This is one of the like it was a good plot device, but it was one of the like most bizarre constructs in you know in uh, in the galaxy that I've heard. So it's basically the one human guy on the on the prison ship. He has this little remote control, and I guess if he gets in trouble, he hits the button. And what the button does is it summons a, uh, like a squadron of X-Wings to blow up wherever he is. Because apparently you're only supposed to push this button like if you're certain doom or something like I don't understand what the point of a distress call where the first thing that the X-Wings did were when they when they find the beacon is they blow up the space station that it's on. They don't like investigate. They don't see if this guy's still alive. Whoever pushed the button, like whoever pushes the button is going to get killed, but also everybody around them. Right. So my question is, why have a floating space prison? If you're just going to blow it up as soon as something goes wrong with it, why not just 
blow up all the people that would otherwise be in space prison. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very weird episode, but it's basically what it shows what it shows is that like the Mandalorian is he's got a moral compass, but he's also still kind of ruthless, right? So he he is moral enough to imprison all of the people that harm that threaten to harm him, but the guy who hired him uh, he is he kills him without compunction. Right. Well, because he knew that that guy set him up, too. And we also learned that at some point the Mandalorian had some kind of relationship with this Twilight woman. Um, and she's uh, not she's a very unsavory character. And, yeah. and it's hard to imagine that she, uh, I don't know, had anything to offer him except lots and lots of trouble. So um, they, they had some kind of past as well. So we do learn that as far as relationships go in this episode. And the other thing that's kind of cool is that, you know, I, I mentioned this is a space Western, but this is kind of like our first space horror episode, too. Um, there's, you know, a lot of stalking of the enemy around corners and, you know, like keep your head on a swivel. The music's weird. The lighting is weird. It, it's kind of a space horror Oh, the other really cool thing that happens in this is that so he leaves Baby Yoda hiding in the closet on his spaceship and the droid's there and the droid is starting to realize because he's just like playing through the entire records on the ship and and he realizes that the assets on the ship and he could make a boatload of money. So little Baby Yoda uh, is on the run and it's hysterical how little Baby Yoda, you know, outsmarts this droid. That's right. Yeah. All right. And then so while he sort of so he does get paid in this job. And then when he is trying to figure out where to go next, he gets a message from Grief Karga and uh, Grief says, hey, look, um, the Imperials are going a little bit nutty on my planet. Uh, There are more and more of them here. I want to kill the client. You want to not be on the run anymore. Come back. Let's use you and the child as bait. And then we'll kill the client and then the bounty hunter guild will restore you and all will be well. And like, we'll get the empire off my planet and let's like, let's get together on this thing. So he decides, even though there's a lot of risk involved in that, he assembles his like team of people that he's run into. So he goes and he picks up Cara Dune. He picks up Quill. Quill introduces him to the reprogrammed IG-11, who is now um, configured to be a nurse droid and assistant to Quill. Um, and they're going to take care of baby Yoda while they're on this mission. And um, so he gets his little gang together and goes for this sort of final showdown with the client. Right. And I think these two episodes are just really well done. So we got episodes seven and eight that round out the series and they introduce new characters. They resolve old conflicts. We learn that uh, the Mandalorian has a name. He's Din Djarin. Uh, we learn a little bit more about his past. We, we learn that, you know, no one has ever seen him without his mask on. Um, and, and we learn that he can finally trust a droid. Yeah, he, he goes through a, a whole evolution with IG-11 and IG saves his life and then sacrifices himself for, you know, to save baby Yoda. And so we get this sort of change of heart in uh, The Mandalorian that he can trust a droid. And he's really heartfelt and, and sick about it, too. He hates the idea that anyone from his little squad might not make it out. And, and you know, he's got Baby Yoda with Quill. And, and you know, it, it's a, a shootout. And 
you know, Baby Yoda is, is he's like, he tells Quill, get him out of here, get out of here. And he, Cara Dune, and Grief Karga are, are probably not going to make it out. And, you know, then all of a sudden it, it's a standoff and they just wind up waiting. And unfortunately, we, we see Quill. He gives his life to protect Baby Yoda. And who should step up? IG-11. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And um, there's a there's kind of a little funny sequence where uh, a couple of uh, speeder bike stormtroopers um, have Baby Yoda. They've 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 killed Quill. That's not funny. Um, and then they've got baby Yoda kind of in a sack and they're waiting for permission to come into town and deliver him. And they keep punching baby Yoda. And I don't know why it's funny, but, um, Jason Sudeikis, uh, from, uh, Saturday Night Live is one of the stormtroopers and he just got destroyed online for this because he keeps punching, keeps punching baby Yoda. Well, baby Yoda also bites him. So he, he's holding his own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, but first of all, I don't condone punching baby Yoda. But I do think that it was pretty awesome Baby Yoda bit him. So if that's what it took for Baby Yoda to bite him, eh, I'm going to shrug my shoulders here. No harm, no foul. Yeah. Um, so ultimately it turns out that the, the big bad, so the, the client, you know, they do meet with the client and while they're meeting with him, he gets blown away from outside the building by Imperial stormtroopers. And it turns out that the real big bad behind all of this is the character we haven't told you about yet. Yeah. And he's a guy named Moff Gideon. Yeah. And Moff is a title that's from the Imperial days as well. And this guy is still running around, um, but he seems to be interested in stuff that's a little bit more than just Imperial. Yeah. So he was, it, it would it would appear from the little bit that we know about him, it would appear that he had something to do with um, intelligence or the Imperial Security Bureau or something like that, because he has a lot of information. He's the guy he knows um, Din Djarin's name. He actually, this is the first time when we meet him is that we hear Cara Dune's name and we find out she's Alderinian. So she's actually an Alderinian refugee, ex-rebellion, ex-New Republic. She's got a whole backstory, right? And uh, and we and I think it's the first time we hear Grief Karga's name. Like we've never really heard anybody's name up to this point, but he goes through sort of the dossiers of each of these folks, proving that he has a bunch of information. They said, they, they realize who it is, and they're like, but I thought he was executed for war crimes. Apparently, he was not executed for war crimes. And he really, 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 really wants Baby Yoda. He really does. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that we learned about Baby Yoda earlier was, you know, how he saved the Mandalorian from the Mudhorn. But we also learned that he's really strong with the Force, but he doesn't know how to use it the right way. And uh, earlier in the seventh episode, Baby Yoda watches Cara Dune and the Mandalorian arm wrestling. And he's like, she's going to beat my dad, you know, and he's not feeling it. So he reaches his little hand up and he uses the force to choke her out, which, you know, not cool. Um, She's on his side. And so she gets really upset about it. The Mandalorian stops Baby Yoda from choking her and was like, no, we don't do that. She's cool. She's our friend. Um, but we learn how truly strong he is. And, and so now we know that Baby Yoda is only going to do as he's taught. So if you've got a bad guy coming after him, now it brings a whole new element as to what they might want with him. That's right. And yeah, he, yeah, so I, I do, I love that. I love that scene for two reasons. One, is an adorable force choke. But also it's, it's, <laughs> well, it's, it's the first time that like, so 
through all of Star Wars, we kind of have this whole light side, dark side thing. And there's a lot of this very heavy emphasis put on, you know, you have to walk the light side. And if you stray into the dark side at all, then, you know, forever will it dominate your destiny and all this kind of stuff. And now you've got this kind of this this child who really doesn't have I mean, can't even speak, doesn't have a moral compass and is using, you know, powers of the force that have been ascribed to light side and dark side without really the, you know, sort of emotional maturity to be able to, you know, either be on either side. And so it's going to be really interesting to see this character kind of grow up or grow into, you know, using the force without a moral, really a a developed moral compass yet. Right. So far, his moral compass is his role model, a.k.a. the Mandalorian. So it's not a good sign. Right. And before that, he lived on a compound with a bunch of, um, I forgot what species they were, but were kind of protecting him, but also were like armed to the teeth and fighting off bounty hunters all the time. So his entire life that we know of, you know, he has witnessed violence uh, for his own protection mostly. And so, yeah, I think he's, you know, he's certainly going to going to grow up with a with a certain perspective as we see him do that. But then at the same time, in these two episodes, there's a random sequence, a random scene that really has no point except to demonstrate this additional baby Yoda power is grief. Karga gets injured in an attack by some reptile bird things whatever doesn't matter um and baby yoda walks up and the mandalorian is trying to push him away because baby yoda walked up to mandalorian once when he was hurt too and he kept pushing him pushing him away and cardoon kind of says hold on let him do what he's doing and baby yoda uses the force to heal grief karga right and at that point grief karga is like you know what maybe i'm going to not turn him over so his original plan was to you know take the child give him over to um the client and you know get the imperials off of his planet and go back to doing guild business and instead baby yoda saves his life he feels this emotional attachment and sense of obligation he shoots his two guys and decides he's going to go along with uh the mandalorian and cara dune and baby yoda yeah this is one of my favorite things in sort of all storytelling which is when somebody says i was going to turn over this one person to be kidnapped or captured or killed and I really I just couldn't do it and then ends up killing two or three other people to save the one person that's important in a weird kind of like this is implicitly like he's becoming more moral about things and then he just murders two people in cold blood to express his new positive morality which I find interesting right and and, you know further to that you know new positive morality we've got battle scene after battle scene hand-to-hand combat a bunch of bullets flying um, while they're on Navarro and, you know, kind of like behind the bar shooting. And so lots of stormtroopers are dying here. We even hear that Moff Gideon k- kills some of his own guys. He's like, yeah, I'm not feeling this. I'm just going to kill you guys, show you how serious I am. Yeah. Um, but what we also wind up seeing is Baby Yoda steps up and he protects like the entire group. Uh, they're going to be fire blasted out of this little hole in the wall that they're hiding in. And Baby Yoda uses the Force to protect them all. Uh, unfortunately, the Mandalorian's been significantly injured throughout all of the fighting. That's right. So two things. One, Baby Yoda absorbs this fireball with the Force and then turns it back on the uh, fire trooper that sent it at him. Getting totally his, burns that guy alive. Yeah, getting his first kill at age 50. Good for him. Uh, and then, yes, and so the Mandalorian is mortally wounded. He tells the rest of the group to take Baby Yoda, get him out of there. And then um, IG-11 says he'll stay behind. 
and says he needs to take off his helmet to heal him. And in a in a really cool scene, the Mandalorian says, no, like, let me die. And, and you know, no living thing has ever seen me with my helmet off. And IG says, well, I'm not alive. I'm a droid. And so then Mandalorian lets him take his helmet off. We actually see his face in the one and only time in the series. He sprays a Bacta spray on him and heals him from his wounds. Right. And it's kind of good to know that, like, these things exist because these guys have been through a ton of stuff. So in order to like continue through their adventures, it's good to know that they've got that kind of medicine, which I feel like we didn't really know about, but for like how, you know, Anakin Skywalker survived and became Darth Vader, but he came, became more like machine than he was really man. And so now we, there's a way that as long as you can get to someone before they're completely burned alive, you can pretty much heal anything, right? Yeah. And so Bacta has been something that has been talked about in legends and like, in even going far back as Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker sort of floating in that tank. That's called a Bacta tank. He's sort of just floating in a, a solution to this stuff. I think Bacta has evolved a little bit. Um, but it's always been this sort of miracle healing thing, which can heal you from injuries and illness and poisoning sometimes. But it cannot heal you if you have your arms and legs cut off as uh, and then were burned alive and then left for dead as Anakin was, which I still think is pretty harsh. Yeah, but he kind of had it coming. He he did have it coming. He was being a brat. Yeah, and we've been through this before. Yeah. So anyway, what's really cool is that they're on Navarro. They manage to fight their way out. And, you know, they're they're going to try to figure out, okay, well, how do we leave? How do we get back to our ship? Um, we've met the Mandalorian's actual face. And they're all running through uh, a series of underground tunnels within um, the town. And they run into what's left of the covert, which is really, really sad. It's not Bo-Katan, but it is the armorer. And, and she basically is like, yeah, th this happened. And, and so they, they talk about what all has happened and what all is going on. And she tells the Mandalorian, this is your responsibility. You found this child as you were once found and you were a foundling. Um, you found this child and now it's your foundling and you're its father. Yeah. She says basically until either the child comes of age or you return it to its people, you are as its father and it's his responsibility to, to do one of those two things. And this then, is the way. This is the way. And she also explains, she tells him about, like I said before, about, you know, the, the race of sorcerers. And so he says, so wait a minute, I'm supposed to bring this child to a race of enemy sorcerers. And she said, yep, that's your job. And he's like, so is this one? And she's like, I don't think this one's an enemy. Um, and so they, they, again, they don't know a lot about the Jedi, but she basically declares them to be a clan of two. The, the two of them are a clan. And um, she gives him a jetpack. Right. And his signet. And his signet. So yeah. signets are apparently something, and again, this is a new thing in in this point of the Mandalorian, but I think what the signets are is, you know, prior to this, the Mandalorians had family clans. And so you were, you know, you were born into a clan and your clan had a name, um, the Vizlas, the Wrens, um, there were a few other clans. And, um, and so now with this sort of notion of like people can be brought into the Mandalorian religion, um, their signet is something that they earn that gives them a, you know, a symbol or a clan definition. And so his is a mudhorn because he and Baby Yoda fought a mudhorn together. And so she declares them sort of the clan of the mudhorn and um, and then says, you know, go go about your business. She gives him a jetpack that she salvaged from um, some of the other Mandalorians that were killed. And uh, and then she sort of 
she just tells them go and they said well you should come with us and she said no i have too much work to do here because she's basically melting down all of the lost mandalorian armor and she said she's not going to leave until like things are taken care of and then some after they leave some stormtroopers come in and she just kills the crap out of them with like forging hammers right she's um very destructive very ruthless yeah yeah very painful looking thing she throws one of them into her forge and just burns just melts melts the whole stormtrooper yeah yeah not good times to still be a stormtrooper no they're they're still bad at everything yeah but i mean i guess what else are they gonna do well yeah i mean if you were a stormtrooper i don't know what else you go and do but just you would think that i don't, I don't know like get better at anything really anything they're bad at everything. They're bad at finding things. They're bad at shooting things. They've got, you know, a, like, you know, a hundred to one advantage on these three people that they're fighting and they can't kill them. They're just really, they're bad at it. That's true. That is true. So anyway, our friends, they managed to get away. They're on this lava river on a boat and ultimately uh, IG-11 sacrifices himself to save them and they're about to make it to their ship and who should show up? Uh, Moff Gideon and so in the kind of final boss battle it's Moff Gideon in a TIE fighter versus everybody else in a boat <laughs> and um, the Mandalorian uses his jetpack which he has no training in whatsoever so he's not great at it. It's a finesse unit and he's not really great at it. No but he manages to sort of uh, hook himself onto the TIE fighter he plants some bombs on it he sets off the bombs, the TIE fighter crashes, and everybody feels like, okay, cool, we've taken care of... They said, they basically said, okay, we've killed all of the stormtroopers in town, and we've killed Moff Gideon, we get our town back, you guys can go find Yoda's family, and uh, good guys win. Yeah, so Cara Dune's gonna stay behind with Grief Karga, she thinks she may have found some extra work. Um, you know, Grief seems like he's not going to place a bounty on the Mandalorian at this point that, you know, all debts are cleared and, you know, he he's not going to send out any more fobs for Baby Yoda to the best of our knowledge. But, um, you know, so Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, they're going to fly off in, in his ship, which I think we've mentioned, but it's called the Razor Crest. And so they're going to fly off in the Razor Crest and go look for baby yoda's family but probably more likely we're gonna learn how the two of them become a family and so you know in kind of a heartwarming scene we see um mandalorian take one of the controls off that baby yoda's constantly been playing with episode after episode and just hands it to him it's kind of the new normal is that you know i don't have toys for you but this is what you like here's your toy um but in a very interesting and exciting uh final scene what what do we see so Moff Gideon, his TIE fighter has crashed. There are Jawas on Navarro, so they're starting to salvage his TIE fighter. And then we see something cutting through the side of the TIE fighter. And we see Moff Gideon step out, and he's holding the Darksaber. What's the Darksaber? So the Darksaber, we may have talked about it before, I don't remember. But just to remind everybody, the Darksaber is a very special lightsaber that was made by the first and... One of very few Mandalorians to be inducted in the Jedi Order. Um, man, I can't remember. He's a member of Clan Vizsla. I want to say pre, it's not pre-Vizsla. I don't know. It's an old Vizsla, and it's a black lightsaber uh, that looks a little bit more like a sword than a normal lightsaber. It's got a little bit more of a flat um, blade-like um, profile, 
but the dark saber who is sort of the excalibur of the mandalorians um as you know traditionally the leader of the mandalorians would would use the you know the dark saber as a symbol of their power so the dark saber was was briefly held by death watch um and then it was taken by uh, maul when he was running mandalore for a, a period of time and then from Maul, it passed to Sabine Wren, who we meet in Rebels. And again, we haven't talked about here, but she restores it back to, I think, uh, Bo-Katan. Yeah. And she gives it to Bo-Katan to run Mandalore. Um, Bo-Katan evidently falls at some point. And um, how the Darksaber now falls into the hands of an Imperial Moth is, um, you know, Something that I'm 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 sure that the next season of this is going to tell us, but it's very interesting to see that come back. It's a very important artifact to the Mandalorians. It is one of the few things that they're pretty fanatical about, and so I have a feeling that uh, that this is going to become relevant in uh, season two. Right, because even the Mandalorians who were totally chill with taking their helmets off, they were still really into the dark saber. Yes, yes, and they were. I mean, it was a big deal to them. Right. And, yeah, and yeah. so. Yeah, so th- this is going to be really cool, uh, and it's yet another tie for Moff Gideon with something that has been Force-wieldy. So he- he's wanting Baby Yoda, he's got a lightsaber slash darksaber, you know, like this kind of thing, that why is this guy who's Imperial really interested in the Force? Yeah, and it's actually a really cool, th- if-, if you think about it, this artifact sort of ties together Clone Wars, Rebels, um, and now uh, Mandalorian. This is a, an object that has sort of passed through all of those things, sort of the way that through all of the, you know, sort of mainline movies, we see um, the the Skywalker lightsaber is sort of a continuing artifact that runs through the whole set of movies. The Darksaber seems to be an artifact that we see across a whole bunch of the, like, non-movie canon. Yeah. So, you know, that that's season one. It, it's so much fun. If you haven't watched it, I know we basically ruined it for you but if you're listening to this then you you signed up for that um but (laughs) but no watch it again it's once you see what the plot's supposed to be then you can see all these tiny little details within and then you can go online and google all those tiny details then rewatch a third time and see those details upon the details that you already missed and now are going oh my gosh that's so cool um and each episode's only what about 30 minutes or so yeah so you know it's not a great investment in time as far as that but it's a great investment of your time yeah it's yeah it's pretty awesome and there are so many just great you know just star wars callbacks all over the place right when you're on tatooine there are pit droids um you know he goes to the cantina where you know he actually has a meeting at the same table where um han and obi-wan and and luke oh no sorry where han and greedo have their encounter right um, I guess that's also the table where Han and, and Obi-Wan and Luke and Chewie all meet. Um, and, you know, there are other things where you just like anytime there's sort of a marketplace scene or anything, just keep a lookout because they're they're just little things like um, like a Kowakian monkey, which is the little critter that uh, sat next to Jabba the Hutt. You see a couple of those in, in one shot and they just do a really good job of doing all these sort of callbacks to random other Star Wars things. Um, you know, and just all of the building architecture and everything on all these planets uh, are just, it's just really good. It's just really good, solid Star Wars. Um, and, you know, no detail is sort of unturned. Um, and and there's really not a lot, other than the, the whole what is the way, there's not a lot of inconsistent, you know, like everything is consistent with the rest of the Star Wars universe. Right. And because of the people involved in the production of this, 
I'm 100% sure that they're going to find a way to bring that in so that it's not inconsistent. Um, as far as like love and relationships go, there, there's not a lot of like romance, if you will, I, I wouldn't say. Well, I would say that, you know, his relationship with the with the one woman on the on the farm planet is a, almost as much romance as we've seen in Star Wars in a long time. Um, and it's the fact more that- fantasy, though, it, it's uh, what could my happily ever after look like? I, I don't think he's necessarily in love with her. Well, I mean, he was pretty close to, you know, abandoning bounty hunting to go to stay with her. And, and I don't think it was just to, like to keep baby Yoda safe. I think that he he thought he could have a real future with her and with that planet. And he was he almost let her take his helmet off like he was ready to go. And then I think he was more in love with the idea versus in love with her maybe I mean, she seemed really nice and i'm sure very worthy of love but we, we don't really see too much interaction other than she brings him food and that they fight together like but maybe that's all you need i don't know i don't know she was a trained fighter there's a backstory she has some backstory that we never hear and like he spent some time there so you know i mean implicitly they were there for a couple of weeks or something right so right. I don't know, but uh, but you're right. Other than that, I think that's more the relationships in this are more family oriented than they are, you know, romance oriented. Right? It's about building non traditional families. Yeah, and, and I I think that's just so much fun in doing that because that's something all of us can do. You don't have to be the skilled bounty hunter. You don't have to be like a super badass, you know, drop trooper. You can be anyone and create family from something that's not just your blood. And that is something that all of us can do and all of us can identify with. And I think that that's why it makes a series such a a great unifier of people. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. Um, are we still going as the Mandalorian and Cara Dune for, for Halloween? Well, assuming that going places, doing things and, you know, wearing costumes is still a thing in the future. Um, I, I don't know if it will be, but yeah, why not? Sure. I mean, look, for me, I get to wear, I, I presume that I'd be the Mandalorian. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could be the Mandalorian. Okay. That would be fine. Cool. And uh, and that means I get to wear a helmet, which would cover my face. So I feel like that follows all of the, the rules as they exist today. Right, right. That That is a helmet. True. A helmet would count as a mask, right? I believe so. Yes. Cool. Well, yeah. then I'm covered. All right. Yeah. No. And I mean, I guess I, I just got to do a lot more bicep curls and I, I'm good for Cara Dune. Yeah, yeah. That and get a get a fun tattoo on your bicep. Yeah. That doesn't sound like something I would do. We'll do it with Sharpie. It'll be great. Uh, we could use magic marker. Isn't that what Sharpie is? No. Magic marker washes off. Oh, OK. OK. All right. All right. So on that note, I love you. I know.